The university only seems to pay attention when all eyes are on them. We have been asking university administration for comment. We spoke to two New York City teachers that would run through some of Brooklyn's lowest income areas. Here at New York University, students who continue to fight to hold the university accountable. On WNYU, WNYU, WNYU. This is The Rundown. Today is Wednesday, March 10th. I'm your host, Izzy McMahon, and we have a great show for you tonight. Starting off, Perry Gregory dives into the strange history behind loud New York City boilers. If this sound is familiar to you, there's a good chance you've lived in a New York City apartment that was built before 1950. There's a horrible noise coming from the evil box underneath the window. It sounds like this. Believe it or not, the origin of clanky, overheating boilers is connected to the history of global pandemics and to an obsolete medical theory called miasma. The miasma theory of contagion was the dominant theory of how disease spread before we understood germs. Colin Gerald Mack is the chair of the Environmental Studies Department and a professor of sociology at NYU. Up until the late 1800s, it was the predominant way of thinking about how diseases, for instance, like cholera and the plague were spread. And the idea was that um, it was caused by so-called bad air. After the Civil War in the U.S. and then eventually in other places, there was something called the fresh air movement, where there was this idea you know, it was noticed that people were particularly sickly who lived in cities and industrial areas. And so there was this idea that fresh air is necessary for good health. And that, you know, so being in tightly enclosed spaces with a lot of other people was unhealthy. And so there was this movement not only to get people outdoors, but then within cities to have windows opened up. This is where your overactive boiler comes in. By the time the Spanish flu hits, you know, the 1918 flu, we actually understand germs now. And so we there was an understanding that it was specific germs, not something more general about the bad air that is caused by specific diseases. That if you kept windows open, if you got people outside, that there was fresh air circulating, that it was much uh, less likely to, you know, for people to get sick. During the flu pandemic, there was this order that all the windows should remain open in buildings and that buildings ought to be constructed with heating systems that can heat an apartment or a large, you know, a large room and offices to sufficient capacity, even when all the windows are open. Across New York, the original steam heaters have been replaced over the past century, but the structures that distribute the heat throughout a building, like radiators and pipe valves, are for the most part all still the same. Their old age is what accounts for all the hissing and clanking. In Manhattan, three quarters of all existing square footage was built between 1900 and 1930. And at this moment today, 80% of residential buildings in New York City are still heated by steam systems. I read that uh, if surveys of New York City apartment dwellers find that 70% of them report being in chronic overheated buildings. And so almost everybody that is in one of these chronically overheated buildings is in an area where that system was constructed a hundred years ago during the 1918 flu. These noisy hot boilers affect the daily lives of hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, and they are relics of a past pandemic. Who knows which social and architectural changes that we have developed in this current pandemic will still be around in 100 years' time. For WNYU, I'm Perry Gregory. Up next, Julie Levy breaks down Refashion NYC, a sustainable fashion event co-hosted by the Department of Sanitation. Fast fashion is one of the most wasteful industries in the world. A study found that almost three-fifths of clothing ends up incinerated or in a landfill within just a year of being produced. During last Friday's Refashion NYC runway show, 
Seven stylists were selected to showcase looks thrifted from New York City-based secondhand stores. Those looks were modeled by Sanitation Foundation employees on the runway. Virtual attendees who were live chatting in a chat box throughout the event marveled over 19-year-old Raquel Tenibajeva's look, a daytime look consisting of an ankle-length yellow and blue floral dress paired with yellow suede heels and a straw beachy handbag. In the end, she won the audience over, winning the People's Choice Award. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. This was an amazing show. Um, and I want to give a big shout out to everyone supporting me, whether online or in person. <laughs> Raquel's a sophomore studying environmental science at Yale University. She started her own company over quarantine when she found herself having more free time. As an environmental studies major, she's quite familiar with the faults of the fashion industry. As I learned more about sustainability, I realized the, the tremendous detrimental effect that fast fashion has had um, on the planet. And, you know, realized that, that fashion and environmentalism are super connected. A study found that 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the apparel and footwear industries. The dyeing and finishing stage was found to be the most polluting step in the production process. Raquel's company, Lots of Berries, repurposes fabric from companies that would otherwise be throwing the rolls away. She makes the fabric into fashionable garments, and she uses high-quality fabrics so the pieces last longer and don't end up straight in a landfill. If you think about it, it's actually more cost-effective to to invest your money in more sustainable clothing, and then you won't have to keep renewing it all the time. For WNYU, I'm Julie Levy. Joey Pat has an update on the town hall in response to allegations of racism at NYU Florence. Last December, Jen Sanchez spoke to former NYU Florence administrator Amanda Adjie for the rundown. Adjie left her job on campus at the beginning of the school year due to incessant racism and bullying from her co-workers. Since then, a number of NYU Florence students have come forward in support of Adjie. The university, on the other hand, has tried to push the issue aside. I've had to do all of the reaching out, basically. They told her they were not allowed to talk about the case. Then, Ajie heard that the students had called for a town hall. I spoke to a freshman who wished to remain anonymous about her experience at the town hall. It was like once people started to ask questions, which is the whole point of a town hall, they would become defensive of themselves. I asked the question along the lines of how do we know, like you say you're gonna change, but how do we know that, that you're not just gonna do this again and not tell anyone again like, like you did before? And they were like defensive about that too. In the meantime, people outside of the administration are updating Ajie on the situation. Florence is small. People don't tell me things. So it's like, again, at the very least, don't be so loud in your, in your racism and in your colorism and in your denial. The best thing for you to do with these are kind of fixes, but they're not doing that. NYU's an arrogant institution. And Ajie plans to see her case through and through. NYU bank on people being quiet and leaving quietly and not saying anything. So I'm just going to keep doing it until um, there's a conclusion to this. For the rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Sarah Pat. Up next, Chandani Smith covers the rising crime in New York City subways. A few weeks ago, on February 14th, four people were stabbed and two were killed in what is being called 24-hour rampage, leaving a trail of blood on the A train. These killings are the latest and most violent examples of what many see as rising crime in the subways. With subway ridership down nearly 70% from last year, many riders find themselves feeling vulnerable and scared. This is Bernadita Suriel, a commuter from Crown Heights, Brooklyn. 
I really don't feel safe. You see a lot of people homeless inside the train, and after all the incidents happening, it's really making us scared. The city responded to the murders by dispatching over 600 additional police officers. The NYPD has also created a brand new transit detective force dedicated to investigating and solving crimes committed in the subway. Our transit squad is going to investigate these crimes with laser-focused investigation, and it's going to be strictly geared towards transit, crime incidents. But the issue of crime in the subway isn't as simple as it seems. Subway crimes are actually down by more than 70% from the same period last year. But with subway ridership down as well, these crimes can feel more concentrated and more frightening. Advocates for the homeless, however, have criticized the city for deploying more police without expanding social services to address the underlying housing and homelessness crisis. I think, unfortunately, uh, we have seen this kind of violence before COVID, you know, and then we're going to see it after COVID. That's Joe Lunam. He's the housing program coordinator for Vocal NY, one of the oldest housing rights organizations in the city. The men who were attacked and who died, and the man who, you know, is being attacked, accused of attacking them, both were failed by the, by the city of New York to, you know, to provide for the care that they needed in order to not have catastrophic situations happen in their lives. Homeless people are often seen as perpetrators of violence on the subway, but Lunum says that in reality, they are far more likely to be the victims of violence, especially in their interactions with the police. The danger that we're talking about when people are on the subway without services is that they will get killed, is that violence will come to them. And historically, cops are violent towards them. So that can't be the solution for that population. Solving this issue, Tulunum, requires a level of empathy from the public and political will from those in charge. It is a, it is a problem that we have known resources that uh, work for a long time and is not invested those in those resources. We think, oh, there's no other way. There's no there's no way that this could all work. But the solutions are out there. You know, they take time, they take money, they're waiting. For the rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Chandani Smith. Caroline Coyer and Reed Miller spoke with students about dating difficulties during the pandemic and why so few of them found connections through the NYU Marriage Pact, a new matchmaking service. For The Rundown, this is Reed Miller. Can an algorithm find your perfect match? Developed at Stanford in 2017 by two undergrad students, the Marriage Pact finds each student their most compatible long-term partner, a quote-unquote backup plan in case both people end up single later in life, and became available to New York University students in late January. The NYU community seemed to love this idea, potentially due to the complications of dating during the pandemic. The quiz was open for two weeks and over 6,000 students participated. That's over 25% of undergraduates. Matches were released on February 13th, just in time for Valentine's Day. Fellow Rundown reporter Caroline Coyer and I spoke with students about their marriage pact experience. I did the marriage pact because I just moved to the city and I wanted to meet someone. So my match requested me on Instagram before I knew he was my match. Then he asked me if I would be down to call him. So I said, yeah. The call was interesting. Um, we haven't talked since. We had like very different personalities. 
I don't think you can algorithmically um, match with someone because it's all about like emotion and stuff. But I think the marriage pack definitely has potential to um, match people, but definitely not for everyone. A certain Sterney who wishes to remain anonymous did find his one. Struggling to make friends and genuine connection all year, the marriage pact gave him the opportunity to just meet someone. Since I'm a freshman, it's been really hard to make friends. So yeah, I filled it out with the goal of meeting someone. I matched up with this girl. So I told her we could like meet over Zoom. And it was cool because we actually met over Zoom on Valentine's Day. So it was kind of like a date. And yeah, I feel that I met a really great person and it's all because of the marriage pact. However, this student's experiences seem to be the exception. He's the only person I've heard that found a spark with their match. Barely any participants I've spoken with have met up with their match. Most never even heard back. Although he was able to find love, most MIU students did not, especially those who identify as queer. I spoke with Yeji Chung, a bisexual soft group. So I had like, uh, maybe a little too much hope going into it. So I got a match and they have not responded back but also like no hard feelings but I was just like oh dang I guess this just wasn't meant to be and I don't know I feel like even if people do try to include like the LGBTQ community in dating apps like it's still going to be kind of like more heterocentric um because that's just like what the norm is. Can the marriage pact work for all students? The idea of marriage along with most dating apps are heteronormative in nature. There aren't many popular dating apps exclusively for queer people. In order to build a matchmaking program that caters to finding queer love, does the algorithm itself have to be queer? I mean, I just don't expect to find love through like any app. I wanted a friend, at least. <laughs> Round noon, they were gonna roll out the results. I was like, I'm so scared. It's gonna be him. If it's him, I'm gonna be pissed. The exact person that I was thinking of pops up on my email. So I guess it's just a matter of just like, two different paths of life that just don't really match with each other, and that's fine. So, can an algorithm find you your perfect match? If you're lucky. According to their Instagram, the Marriage Pact will be back next year for students to get another shot at love. For The Rundown, this has been Caroline Coyer and Reed Miller. Jack Peterson spoke to members of GSOC, the graduate student union at NYU, which is in the midst of ongoing bargaining with the administration. Nine months, dozens of demands, and virtually no movement from NYU's administration. Since last summer, NYU's graduate student union, GSOC, has been campaigning for a variety of changes to take place in regards to NYU's treatment of graduate student workers, including TAs, research assistants, and on-campus employees. The demands, which have been almost completely ignored or rejected by NYU, include better pay, benefits, and health care for grad workers, as well as requests to cut ties with ICE and the NYPD. NYU's counterproposal would allow ICE agents to search grad workers even without a legally required warrant. Other requests demand that NYU include anti-discrimination and anti-harassment protocols in contracts and in the hiring process, requests which have been denied as well. No responses or inadequate responses on so many of our key demands. I spoke with Colin Vanderberg and Virgilio Lazardi, two members of the bargaining committee who have been involved with this fight since the beginning. You know, they've made some modest offers sort of around the margins of our contracts, but, you know, for every, I think, you know, modest offer or, or step forward, 
that has been made, there have been many more instances where NYU, again, has simply ignored our demands or, or met them with utterly inadequate offers. For example, the, the $1 increase, the $1 raise in the minimum hourly wage for master's workers and a $2 uh, raise for PhD students. It's a, it's a tiny and, and inadequate raise, uh, but also it would create a tiered pay system and drive this, this wedge, create this disparity between master's and PhD students, which we've never had. We put forward a living wage based on what the maximum hours at hourly workers, which are among the lowest paid workers, employees of the university, uh, would have to earn, which is around $46. And they responded with 2122. And in the six or seven intervening months has not modified it. Um, so for the university to claim, as it continues to do, uh, that the union is simply being unreasonable, I think completely spins the narrative. We have come prepared to every bargaining session with places in which we have indicated our willingness to move or to at least find uh, some sort of point of agreement. And they simply respond either with delay tactics or with claims that they are being generous enough and why should we ask for more? Last week, GSOC delivered a petition directly to NYU that was designed to serve as their last warning. This basic demand alone garnered over 1,200 signatures on the basis of our membership. Once we delivered that petition on Monday, clearly NYU took notice. Now, whether or not they are going to then move on anything in order for us to consider escalation remains to be seen. But the petition states clearly that if negotiations are not going to move in the way that they've been moving, um, then we would be prepared to call something like a strike authorization vote and be willing to engage in a work stoppage. You know, again, not only for bettering the conditions uh, and benefits of grad workers, but also the, the conditions of undergrads and, and really improving um, the life of the university um, for, for all employees. A strike authorization vote, if passed, would allow GSOC's bargaining committee to call an official strike, a financial blow that NYU seems likely to receive. So I, I think the single takeaway that undergrads would have is that this fight impacts you directly, not indirectly, directly. Do you want to have graduate workers who are uh, being taken care of and who will come into your recitation sections, who will grade your papers, who will do the research assistantships, et cetera, uh, happily and with time and with care? Um, our students' uh, learning conditions are our working conditions um, and, and vice versa. Wages, benefits, health care, working conditions, paid family leave, and, and so much else, you know, directly affect not only the, the quality of, of life and work um, for grad workers, but, but the broader environment of university. By and large, graduate students uh, want to teach. They care about their undergraduates. They see what they do as something that's you know, noble and that fulfills this sort of you know, imperfect ideal of trying to create and, 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 and spread knowledge uh, that will hopefully better the world. Um, but the reality is this just can't be done on sheer willpower. It has to be supported institutionally. It has to come with something like a living wage and working conditions that are guaranteed by such a wealthy institution like NYU. To be quite frank, the ball is in NYU's court. This is an outcome that would signal to the university that they have failed in actually treating their graduate workers as employees, as people who not only allow this institution to run, but provide the world-class education they're so proud of in their brochures and whatnot. Unless the university tries a different path, then we will. GSOC's next bargaining session with NYU, which is open to the public, takes place on March 18th and could decide whether a strike happens. For The Rundown, I'm Jack Peterson. That's all for tonight. 
Thank you for tuning into The Rundown, 89.1 FM. I'm your host, Izzy McMahon, and stay tuned for new WNYU podcasts.